Well, good morning. Welcome, everyone. Uh, if this is your first time or first couple of times of uh, being here at uh, New Life Christian Center in Addy here, we definitely are glad that you're here and uh, definitely glad that uh, you've joined us as we come to worship and give God praise and glory and also look into His Word. I can't think of a more fitting song to end the worship set with. And I would really encourage all of us really to have that phrase, Christ be magnified, in our kind of just kind of ringing in our ears as we look at today's passage because really that's the, um, that's the epitome of one of the guys that we're going to talk about today. If you've been here at any length of time, you know that we're studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. We've made it into Mark chapter 6. By the time we get to chapter 6, by the way, I'll stop and say that if you haven't been here or you're wondering like, how do I catch up or how do I kind of fill in the blanks of what we've been studying here at Addy, you can go on to our website and listen to previous messages. They go way back. Uh, if you're looking for just a good opportunity to hear me uh, make a fool of myself at, from time to time or throw out some uh, goofy antidote from the farm, you can go to the same place. Uh, you can go to our website and look up the sermons and listen. And, um, but by the time we get to chapter 6 here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' popularity is really is growing and growing. It's, it's, in a, it's in a huge, we would call a huge upswing. Um, just he's been just uh, uh, bombarded with people, bombarded with problems to to resolve situations, to address. He's had multiple miracles. Uh, he's brought a young girl back to life. Uh, he's cast out demons. You name it. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the passage today that we're going to look at, and then I'll kind of back up into what we studied, the last verse, what we, one of the last verses we studied last week. But if you'll join me, give you an opportunity to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6, we're in verse 14. Mark 6, 14 starts off here. Mark records, he says, Now King Herod heard of him, capital H, so talking of Christ. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it's the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded, for he's been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. Because John had said, <clears throat> because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19 records, Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him, and when he had heard him, he did many things. <clears throat> he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles and his high officials and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias, daughter of 
Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in and with haste to the king and asking and saying, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrowful, sorry, yet because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head be brought. And when he had beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples had heard of it, they came and took away the corpse and laid it in a tomb. E. When I read through that every time, I've read through it several times this week, and I, 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 you just come away at the end of that just thinking, well, man, this is like, this is heavy. What, what is... What is going on here? What is going on here? As I mentioned before, I started reading in that passage, the link to understanding today's passage is to look really back to one of the verses at the end of last week's passage where Jesus had sent the disciples out and he sent them out into the villages to spread the gospel. The verse I really want to hone in on, the two verses really that I really want to hone in on is verses 12 and 13, so scan back in your, in your Bible or they'll have it up on the screen, where it tells of what the disciples did. Verse 12 says, so they went out and preached that the people should repent. Underline that in your Bible. Like, I give you full permission. Maybe you're like, no, I can't write in my Bible. That ain't right. I'm not telling you to uh, supplement what is written. I'm just saying if like you're a writer, if you're writing notes on the side, that is the message. That is the message. That is the gospel, that people should repent. The most powerful four words, really, that we can share with anybody. Verse 13 says, And they cast out many demons, anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. The gospel is God's message of repentance. It's God's message of change. It's God's message of surrender. And whenever you have really these um, growing grassroots efforts, which is really what Jesus' ministry was, and to a large degree, John the Baptist's ministry, if you want to go back and look at, at, at other places in the gospel where it talks about John the Baptist, both of these uh, were really like, if you can imagine, two gears working together. That's kind of the way that, that John the Baptist's ministry was and his cousin Jesus. That's kind of how their ministries were. They worked together, but both of them in and of themselves were grassroots effort that God was starting there in Israel. And whenever you have these building grassroots effort, it catches really the attention, not just of the people, but it catches the attention of everyone, especially the king. Especially the king. Mark tells us, takes the time then to document these events surrounding the moral collapse of Herod as king, and I really should be using quotes around that word king. He wasn't really a king. We'll get into that in a bit. 
But the moral collapse of a king and the brutal execution of the last Old Testament prophet, that's what this passage is about. Uh, and and that's, why it's, that's why it's heavy, because like, we, we look at two components here, and, 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 and you may be thinking what I'm thinking, or what I've been thinking all week. It's like, so what's the good in all of this? What's the takeaway? What's the positive? Like last week we talked about rejection. Now we're going to talk about murder. Uh, where's this guy going with this <laughs> series through Mark? Like how bad is it going to be? I've thought that many times myself. But the moral collapse of a king and the brutal execution of the last Old Testament prophet. A little insert on my opinion of the John the Baptist. I believe he is both the last Old Testament prophet and also the first New Testament martyr. Uh, that is kind of a special spot in my mind and uh, in, in, in my view of John the Baptist. I think he was both the, the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament martyr. The latter, the latter, his execution of John the Baptist really was wrapped up in one thing, and that's Herod's guilty conscience. Verse 14 through 16 bears this out. So scan back in the passage there to verse 14, where it says, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. That's a grassroots effort. And he said, now this is the king's take, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. He was panicking. He, was, uh, he had a guilty conscience. He had, a, he had a, uh, this thing that was riding on him, and now you have this second big wave, if you will, in a sense that Jesus was the second big wave of, of grassroots effort in Galilee that, that, that people were flocking to, and here's, here's Herod, and he's got, he's got this guilty conscience riding on him because he knows what he allowed with John the Baptist was evil. Then you have two other references. Others said it was Elijah, and others said it was a prophet or like one of the prophets. And then by the time you get to verse 16, but Herod said, no, this is John, whom I beheaded. And he's been raised from the dead. In a sense, in his idolatry, he was being worked over big time in his own mind, thinking, oh no, John the Baptist has come back to get me, right? He's, John the Baptist is back to come after me, back to take me out. He kept circling around it and circling around it. Some people thought it was Jesus and some <clears throat> thought Jesus was Elijah. Let's look at a verse there. This was actually prophesied by the prophet Malachi. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, in the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That's the passage that, that the sum, or verse 15, that's the passage that the others were thinking of in verse, t- verse 15, that it, the others thought it was Elijah because of these verses. The others thought it was the prophet. Others thought he was the prophet, perhaps the one whom Moses spoke of. We find that in, referenced in Deuteronomy 18, 15, where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. From your brethren, him you shall hear. So there were some that were thinking that way, some that were thinking of Elijah. Regardless, the storyline really stays with Herod. And Herod was convinced that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated. 
That was the belief that was driving his guilty conscience. And that's exactly what sin does. That's exactly what sin does. It drives us into jaded patterns of thinking. Do you guys understand what the word jaded is? Jaded is like obscure or just a little off. It's kind of like looking through a kaleidoscope. You're seeing colors, and you rotate, and it changes a little bit. It's jaded. What you're seeing is jaded. And that was the way that King Herod was in his sinful state. He was driven in patterns of jaded thinking. This Herod was much like his own father, Herod. If you think back to other places in the gospel, Matthew, Luke, who uh, on the news of this coming Savior went out and slaughtered all the young boys in Bethlehem just to eliminate any competition to the throne. That was this Herod's father. And so it's interesting that then, then that these, uh, it's a good insertion of generational sin, really, because generational sin is, is, is the premise for that is generational patterns, patterns of thinking, patterns of behavior. That one generation picks up on what they observe in the previous. And so this Herod now is panicked and, and driven crazy by this new upswell this, of ministry in Christ because of what he had done, his dad. His dad took a real proactive approach. He essentially aborted a whole generation of kids in a region, a whole generation of young men. If you stop and think about it, Jesus didn't have any friends his age. Not in Bethlehem, anyway, not in that region. Because that Herod took them all out. He had them all executed. History records, and I'll get into this uh, uh, kind of the lingering tale of this at the end, but history records for us that actually Emperor Augustus denied the title king to the Herod that we're talking about here in Mark 6. And goaded by ambitious, this Herod was goaded by the ambitious Herodias, who he had taken as his wife, his brother Philip's wife. Herod pressed for the title again and again until he so offended the emperor's court that he was dismissed as a traitor. I'm going to just put a pin in that and talk about that at the very end of the sermon. So Mark uses this title then, King Herod, because uh, it, was a, it, it was more of a local custom than anything. Or more like he's using it kind of in an ironic sort of a way, and all of his ancient readers would remember about this Herod. He would re- they would remember his character more than anything. They would remember his deeds and, uh, and how he lived more than anything. And Herod was not concerned at all, though, with his character. He was busy trying to build a reputation. He was busy trying to build a reputation. I would venture to say that his Herodias was on that same track. A little admonition for us all. Focus on your character, not your reputation. Like if there's a resounding thing that God is doing through the work of your sanctification in, in, in chiseling away on you and chiseling away on me uh, all of the things that are not Christ-like in our lives... He's not working on your reputation, folks. He is focused on your character. He's focusing on who you are. Character is who you are. Your reputation is what other people think of you. God's work in our lives is the process of changing who we are. 
not others' opinions. Do we understand that? Like, a, a, like the Apostle Paul is a great example. There was lots of, uh, he, had a great, he had quite a reputation with the Christians before he became a believer when he was Saul of Tarsus. And, and that reputation kind of hung with him. But God didn't go after his reputation when he saved Paul. He went after his character. He changed his character. He changed his belief. He changed his identity from a non-believer to a Christ follower. He changed his character. The reputation changed over time. You don't really see Paul being too overly focused on his reputation. Herod was obsessed. This guy was obsessed with the opinions of others. He was driven by the opinions of others. But he was remembered most of all for his lack of character. Mark goes on then in verse 17 and following to kind of backfill the story, if you will. He backfills the story of really then what happened to John the Baptist. Because here in the early verses of what we read uh, in you know, 14 through 16, we, we see the Herod kind of obsessing about who this new guy is and is it the guy that he killed. Well, Mark goes into backfield like a good movie. Like a good movie, they show you a little bit on the front end. Then they go back and they backfill the story to bring us up to speed as to where things are. The same thing is true in Mark's writing here. He's backfilling the story on John, the most popular preacher of his era, who was imprisoned not for his personality, but for his preaching. It's critical as Christians that we understand the difference. Because most of our culture is wrapped around chasing or listening to or tweeting about or reading tweets and post uh, and stuff on social media or on the news. It's all about personality more than anything else. John was not in prison because he was a dynamic guy. He was not in prison because he looked weird, he ate weird food, he dressed weird, he had a long beard. He, he, wasn't, in, he wasn't in prison because he stood out in culture differently because his personality was different. You never have that in the Bible. You never get that implication. There's one reason and one reason only that, the, that John the Baptist was in prison. He was in prison for his preaching. He was in prison for his preaching. This is really a good gauge for us today to figure out where people are on social media, especially if they're in the hot seat. You have to dig past the fluff and get back down to the substance of what they're actually saying, what they actually mean by what they're saying. And is that the reason why they're in trouble? Or are they in trouble because they're a, you know, a, a blue state person or a red state person? Are they, are they on one side of an equation and not the, and the other, but it's not about their message, it's about their personality? We have to, we have to really gauge, and this is a really a textbook opportunity and, and passage for us to really gauge and for us to then apply for today on how to understand where people are. John's preaching was marked by these things, these attributes. Write them down if you wish. They were marked by humility, clarity, urgency, integrity, direct. He was direct and he was straightforward. I didn't know how to combine those two, but maybe just straightforward. 
That, that's what marks, that's, that's if, you, if, if John the Baptist were here today for us to share a message, we would see these things, right? We would see these things in his life. We would see these things in his message. He knew exactly who he was, and he knew exactly who he was not. There was no second guessing. There was no, you know, well, man, I guess I could be, or... Or uh, wouldn't it be nice to be? Or, or there was none of that. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly who he was not. I want to read a passage that points out some of these things. We're kind of, kind of just dive into a few passages here as we go, uh, and 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 look at it. Matthew three one through fourteen. I'll just read it. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven." is at hand. You tell me, direct and straightforward? Any question there about what his message is? Like you don't have to really mine it out. What did he really say by what he was, or what did he really mean by what he was saying? No, he meant exactly what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who is spoken of by the prophets. Isaiah, I highlighted this passage, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight. He knew exactly who he was. He wasn't bragging on it. He was, he, he was humble about it, but he knew who he was. Verse 4, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, strange, but not out of line. Verse 5, then Jerusalem, all, then Jerusalem, all of Judea and the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. That was the response of the people to his message. Not his personality. That was the response of, of the people coming under the conviction of the Spirit, in a sense, coming under God's conviction through the, the message of the gospel was to repent, to change your ways. The kingdom's here. Verse 7 says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him, <clears throat> to him, uh, to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Everybody want to vote for direct and straightforward? I vote with two hands. He's talking to the religious elites of the day. The leaders of, Ju of Judaism are standing there. They're coming from that area anyway. They're coming to him, and that's his message to them? You bunch of snakes? Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? I mean, how would that go over if those were my first words when I stepped to the pulpit? Welcome to Addy, you brood of snakes. Be a few people that's like, Ethel, grab your purse and your coat. We're out of here. That's not the welcome committee. That's not the logo out on the sign. Direct and straightforward? Absolutely. Therefore, verse 8, bear fruit worthy of repentance. See, it wasn't wrapped up in his personality. It wasn't wrapped up in his local stardom. John stayed focused on the message. 
And he simply said, hey, of people that he probably didn't much care for, that's my insertion. You call somebody a brood of vipers, you probably have a bit of an attitude about them. But the reality, he just says, hey, you, if, if you're coming to repent and be baptized, if you're coming to confess your sins, put on fruit in keeping with your repentance. In other words, he's saying, hey, you guys just go demonstrate that the work of God in you is real. That's the message that he's given them. Just go demonstrate it. Bear fruit. Make it tangible. Bear fruit that's worthy of the fact that your life has changed. Do not think to yourselves, he says in verse 9, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Direct and straightforward? Yep. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, he says. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me, he knew exactly who he was and he knew exactly who he wasn't in that statement. He who is coming after me is mightier than I and whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, his winnowing fan is in his hand. I have a different translation in my mind, but that's all right. You're following along. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Man, here's a guy that's like super direct. You do not have to wonder what was said by listening to John the Baptist. Not at all. Then Jesus came, verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, humility, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Humility. John was not a boastful guy. He was not a proud and arrogant guy. Did he have a big personality? Maybe. But did he speak with clarity? Absolutely. Did he, did he speak with conviction? Absolutely. Did he speak straightforwardly to the people and tell them not what they wanted to hear, but what God had for them to hear? Amen, yeah. That's right. That's exactly what he did. So that's a little of the backdrop story behind the preaching. John knew exactly who he was and who he wasn't. He was the messenger not the Messiah. He was the messenger, not the Messiah. Somewhere, <clears throat> somewhere some would say, back to chapter 6, somewhere in all of this, probably for Herod and Herodias, that John went from preaching to meddling. That John went from preaching to meddling. Because we all like a good sermon, right? We all like, we all like a good fiery sermon. We all like a, you know, uh, we don't mind sitting under, you know, some heavy, you know, downhill uh, gospel message preaching. What we don't like, <laughs> stop laughing, Tiffany, you're driving me nuts. What we don't like is we don't like it really when the pastor, the preacher, starts meddling. And there's a difference between preaching and meddling. Do we know the difference between... Who wants to know the difference between preaching and meddling? All right, Tony, this is just for you, bro. First hand I saw going. 
Preaching is when the Word of God applies to everyone else. And meddling is when the Word of God hits you between the eyes. And it's really, really uncomfortable. Do we understand the difference? Now, I'm speaking a little bit out of tongue-in-cheek here. But in reality, that's the, that's the storyline between all we just read about John the Baptist and where we are then in Mark chapter 6, where he gets thrown in prison for what he had said. He'd kind of gone to meddling. It's a storyline here. Now, John's message of repentance really started to push some buttons. They pushed Herod's buttons for sure. Uh, to a degree that Herodias ended up being really fried over this whole thing. She was hot. We said that we just read about that. We'll get back to it in a second. A couple of things to note that uh, Herodias was both Herod's niece and sister-in-law. There's kind of a strange, I'm not going to get into all the genealogy of it all, but she kind of had, there was kind of a dual role there. Mark does not forget to mention, when she's first mentioned, that she's somebody else's wife. Now he says that, kind of looking back, backfilling, looking back at the story, and he still says that about her. That she's actually somebody else's wife. At some point along the way, John the Baptist had confronted Herod about this. Look back at in your Bible at verses 17 through 20, where it says, For Herod himself <clears throat> had sent to lay hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. If Philip was long out of the picture, why does God inspire Mark to write that? For he was married to her. Because John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and a holy man, and he protected him and went and heard him, and did, he did many things and heard him gladly. So there's a couple of responses here that we could diagnose. Herod's, or Herodias' response first. Herodias's response was she nursed this grudge about this confrontation. She nursed a grudge against John for the confrontation that John had with Herod. And so she wanted to kill John, really for calling out uh, their sin and calling them to repentance. She wanted to kill him, just for that. Then in later verses, this grudge that she had been nursing, the hatred in her heart, In later verses, she executes a manipulative plan then to bring that death about. It was her idea, not his. Herod is uh, not innocent in the whole thing either. Herod's response just from these few verses is he imprisoned John for his bold rebuke of their sin. He was prisoned to protect John, in a sense, from Herodias kind of keep him uh, captive, you know, the old adage, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That was Herod's MO right here in these verses in Mark 6. Uh, keep, keep, 
keep, keep this guy that is really confronting our sin, keep him real close. In fact, why don't we just go ahead and throw him behind bars? That way <laughs> he's easy to track. Just have to walk downstairs. But in a sense, he did it to protect John, protect himself. Third response is, is that Herod knew John was a just and holy man. We see that right there in, in verse 20. Knowing that he was a just and a holy man, there was something about John, there was something about his message, there was something about what he was saying that had a ring of truth that Herod could not get out of his own mind. He was fascinated with it all. And so he wanted to protect him. He wanted to hold him close, and he was puzzled at John's message. It says there, he did many things and he heard him gladly, but he liked to hear from John. He enjoyed perhaps the style. But I have this in bold letters in my notes. Not enough to do what was right. Not enough to do what was right. I'll throw this out about Herod out of my own thoughts. He's one of the Bible's greatest cowards. Because he had the truth all in front of him. He had multiple opportunities. He had 100% access to all information available in, in, in that region. He both had opportunity to talk with both John the Baptist multiple times and with Jesus at the end of Jesus' life. By the way, do you know how that conversation went? <coughs> dead silence. Ladies and gentlemen, it was dead silence. There was no word spoken other than what Herod said. Because by then it was too late for him. And Jesus ghosted him in that moment. So then Herod had to send him off. His opportunity had passed. His opportunity to do the right thing had passed. All of this fascination was not enough to do what was right. Herod, in a sense, had the worst of combos. He had both pride and lust working on him and in him. The pride of his position, the lust after women. By the way, Herodias was not as, like he had been married, you know. And back then it was like kind of anything goes. Multiple marriages, all of that. He had pride and lust working in him, drawing him away from the true and the right word of God. Drawing him away to the, from the conviction that came in John's preaching. The merits of the rebuke perhaps are just as confrontational today as they were in that first century. Because essentially John's message is it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And I want you to think this week on this question. What law was John talking about? That's the question that's been on my mind for a couple of years now. What, what law did John refer to? Was it Roman law? Roman law was, and there was, I've looked up in the history, there was, Rome had a sense of, of moral conduct for their people. Adultery and, and all of that was, uh, it was laws on the books. Not too closely adhered to, of course. But there were some laws on the books. Was John talking about Jewish law? 
Was he talking about Old Testament law? Was he talking about conduct? Was he talking about the Ten Commandments? I'm going to propose to you that there's a third category. God's law. The original law for marriage, which we see back in Genesis. Is that where John was going at, uh, going for? I mean, I will say straight candidly and forward to you that that's what I believe. I think, John, I think John was just straightforwardly going right back to God's original intent. And he was drawing them out to repent from that. To repent of their actions. To repent of their sin. And that stand right there, that straightforward, candid message cost him his life. That's what tripped the, the wire, so to speak, in John the Baptist storyline let's look at a few words here a different take on this <coughs> and I'll let you guys kind of uh, form an opinion but I ran <coughs> I was looking at uh, this passage in, in light it's not a parallel to Mark chapter 6 but I think that it uh, it well describes and fills in some blanks for us and that's out of Matthew chapter 16 verse 24 through 26 take a little quiz here verse 24 says then Jesus said to his disciples if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me I ask you is that describing John the Baptist or King Herod this is your chance to insert describes John the Baptist Comparatively speaking, right? For whoever desires to, desires to save his life will lose it. Does that describe John the Baptist or Herod? It describes Herod. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John the Baptist or Herod? John the Baptist. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul. Does that describe John the Baptist or Herod? That's right. It describes Herod. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Rhetorical add-on to the first question. That describes Herod. John's message was simply this. Repent of your sins. Trust God for your salvation. And trust him to create a new life in you. That's what repentance is. That was the message. Herod and Herodias were focused on the here and the now. They were focused on uh, the fact that they could get all they can out of life in this sense and power and prestige and influence and wealth. Like that's what they were driving at. If you look, that, look up their storyline in history books, that's, where the, that's, that's what that was motivating them. That's what was pushing them. That's what drove their decisions. Well, the rest of the story then continues this way. It starts out in verse 21. Then an opportune day came. I'll tell you, folks, if you're nurturing a grudge, if you're looking to get back at somebody that it has embarrassed you, if you're looking to, then the opportune day will come. I'll guarantee it. 
If you're looking for revenge, opportunity will show up. And then the opportune day came. That's exactly what Herodias was looking for. She was looking for an... Hey, let me ask you, fellas. This might be a little embarrassing. What guy in here plans their own birthday party? That's what I thought. <laughs> we don't plan our own birthday parties. Like, we would be fine. Oh, hey, steaks and a baked potato, right? You know, let's fire off a few rounds in the range. Call it a day. Amen. Now we're talking. That's how we would plan a birthday party for ourselves. It doesn't say in the text, necessarily, but no doubt, birthday parties are a great time to exact revenge in the sense that that's how this story went down. Herodias was looking for a chance to execute a revenge over being called out by John the Baptist. Of all things, she shamefully I'm not going to reread the whole text, but I highlight this. She shamefully uses her daughter in the process. Shamefully uses her daughter in the process. Now, let's, there's no, we don't know much more about that daughter from this point forward either. But I think that we're all mature enough to think that that left a massive scar in the long run for that gal. She, not knowing what to do, of course, asked her mother. The trap was sprung. Herod was caught between his public image and the prophet that he had respect for. And the prophet lost. That's how the synopsis of the rest of the verses there. In the time we have remaining, I would ask a couple questions. What are we to make of all this? And, and what, what perhaps then, like how... These last couple of messages, I'll admit, they've been tough. How do we apply what we've been talking about? How do we apply? How do we get down to like, all right, Mark, I can take what, what the Holy Spirit is saying to me today or what he said last week, and I can put it to work on Thursday. Like, that's when I think of application. I think, all right, how do we get it tangible in the hands? How do we make it tangible in our life? What's the takeaway from all this serious talk? I think there's one simple point of application here because this is perhaps one of the saddest stories in all of history if you think about it in light of the fact that how much opportunity Herod and Herodias had to respond to God and they chose not to. To me, it's an extremely sad story. I'll tease you with that for the ending. But here's the application. We must be, highlight must, we must be careful to listen when the word of God is proclaimed. We have to be careful. We have to listen with intentionality. The problem is, is that we fall oftentimes, I'm more guilty of this maybe than anybody here. I don't know. You tell your own story. But we often, I often am engaged in a conversation and I'm listening not to understand what the other person is saying, but I listened so that I can have a response as soon as they stop their sentence. It's a fatal flaw. It's something that God has been working on in me. I'm praying that he's working on that in you. That, that, that you don't hold the pattern. Just to listen to respond rather than to listen to understand. We need to listen 
We need to listen to understand. We often get hung up in the idea of amusement. And so that's another pattern. We, we, we like to be amused rather than contemplate in serious thought and, and really take some time to think things through. If you break down that word amusement, muse means to think and ponder, and awe is the uh, opposite of that. So you go, into a hist- uh, you go into a museum to what? To walk around, to read the plaques, to, to take it in, and to think about it, and to think about the era that, that you know, this, you know, steel wheel wagon was made from and, and, and ponder what, what it must have been like. And, and if you grow, I'll give you a little insight into my house, into, into the growing up with my dad. We'd be, we're always going somewhere. Well, let's drive to Walla Walla and look at a combine. All right, great, let's go. So we get to Colfax and I'm like, Dad, I'm starving. Well, what about our, he'd start in, what about our ancestors that came from Kansas in a covered wagon? They didn't have a McDonald's. I said, well, that's not my fault. <laughs> they, they, you know, they had, a, they had a wooden barrel full of stale water and a little bit of hardtack, he'd say. We better keep going. So when I think about being in a museum looking at a covered wagon, that's the story that comes to me. Now you know why my mind is, works the way it does. To muse means to think or to ponder. Awe means no thought required. It means the opposite. Amusement. Amusement park. You can go, just have fun. You don't have to think about it. The problem is, is that we take too much of that into the conversations that require us We take too much of the amusement side. Christianity, stuff full of coming to church and just being amused. I say that in the broad church of, uh, uh, the broad context of the church. The lights, the glitter, you know, the, we were in a church one time uh, down in Yuma, Arizona, Upstart Church. There was the only people in there that was over 30 was me and the people we were with. And uh, between the disco ball, the strobe lights, and the, uh, I want to say tear gas, but that's not right. We would all have been dead on the floor. Fog. The fog machine. I thought, what, what kind of a concert are we, what is going on here? It was called Generations Church, plural, generations. And I'm thinking, where's the rest of the plurality here? It's all like, and right across from there was the, you know, the Marine Air Base, and so they definitely got a lot of young Marine couples in there, the point I'm saying is, is that uh, we get drawn to the amusement rather than the think-through side of things. Herod missed what so many miss. He missed the, in the amusement of John the Baptist's ministry, he missed the message. And at the end of the day, he followed his wife's scheme rather than following God. It was better that the prophet lose his head than for Herod to lose face publicly. And Herod chose intentionally, Herod chose creation. He chose creation rather than the creator. That's why the story is so sad. He chose creation rather than the creator. You can footnote Romans 1 for that. My greatest concern is that like Herod, people can show up for the amusement 
show up at church on Sunday to admire messages on truth while simultaneously rejecting the truth of the message. That bites. I'm not going to lie to you. That hurts. I get it. And, 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 you, and you know what the outflow of that is? You know, you know what the symptoms of, of, of that type of sad story is? Is the takeaways are about being fed or uh, I didn't like the style of worship or I didn't like, you know, and it's, it's, it's I'm not getting as a Christian consumer the goods that I wanted to get while I was there. And so as a consumer Christian, I just move on to the next. See if I can get what I want somewhere else. That's a symptom of the amusement culture in Christianity. Herod had that same problem. It's not new to us. 2,000 years later, we're still admiring John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's not one risen or one greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a compliment. When the second person of the Trinity says that about somebody, that's something to, 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 to stop and think over. He wasn't just saying this because it was his cousin. He wasn't just saying this because, uh, you know, because he ate weird food and looked strange, looked like Phil Robertson off of Duck Dynasty. He didn't say it because of that. He said it because John the Baptist gave his life for the gospel and stood on God's principles. That's why he said it. He stayed faithful and true to the ministry and the calling and the message. He didn't worry about the amusement and the personality side of it. That's why he said what he said in Matthew 11. Nobody greater. It's kind of a shake-up for some systems of belief that want to put other people greater. As I teased earlier, what happened to Herod and Herodias? It's an interesting storyline out of history. History tells us that their obsessive desire for power and influence caused a lot of strife and conflict for the emperor. To the point when the, when the new emperor, Caligula, came into power, he banished Herod and Herodias into exile in Gaul. Anybody know where Gaul is? France. About as far away <laughs> as you can possibly be, uh, not geographically, but, and go somewhere was to go to northern Europe in that day. And they were exiled to this place called Gaul, northern France. It's actually kind of a overlays between France and the Netherlands, that whole region. If you think about it, uh, they're winners. Anybody ever been to northern France? Everybody ever been there in the wintertime? Not real fun, Right? as opposed to like being in the Middle East where it's warm and the sea br breezes flow. They're up there with the North Sea breezes flow living out their days. And it's pretty much just, they died there. There's no more that's written about them. There's no more that's highlighted about them. There's no more that's said about them. The gospel message, if the worship team wants to come on up, the gospel message, what John was about with Herod, what Jesus is about, and we're going to see this in coming weeks, 
Uh, in fact, I'll throw a little teaser. I'm going to be gone part of February, and uh, Ramon uh, Tatarovich is going to come and preach for us in the middle part of February, and I'm not sure if he's going to continue in the Gospel of Mark or if he has other things that he wants to share. But what's clearly understood coming out of this passage is, is the gospel message, the, the message of repentance that John the Baptist had uh, was not, it does not have and never has had the intention to entertain. That is not what we see in Paul. That's not what we see in Christ. That it's just for our entertainment. That's the saddest part about Herod's story. The gospel message is a message that creates an opportunity to respond in faith and to surrender. That's the essence of the gospel message as far as it, its attended, intended effect. Is that it creates an opportunity to believe, it creates an opportunity to exercise faith, and it creates an opportunity to surrender, of which all three things, Herod and Herodias, chose no they chose no he liked the entertainment she didn't much care for the guy he liked to be amused she was offended talk about division in the home right ultimately ultimately their sin got the better of them in the end and it's a sad story but I'm here to tell you that that doesn't have to be your story if you're not a believer. It doesn't have to be the story of the people that you minister to in, out in your communities and in and, and places that you live or work or, or have opportunity to share with people. It doesn't have to be that way for them. And this is a sober reminder of what happens when people reject Christ and His ways, when they reject God and His law, when they refuse and refuse and refuse to be convicted and come under God's authority. Sobering reminder, yet I say as we close and we sing our last song, that it's also a good reminder that there's lots of opportunities for everybody. That there's opportunities for people. Herod had, this is not a story that took place in a few days or a week. This is a story that took place over a period of time. And there's always an opportunity. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, if you don't believe in Christ and you came just like, well, I'm just going to go see what they have to say. Now's the day for you to believe. Now's the day for you to not take those same steps that they took. Now's the day for you to respond to Christ, to believe in Christ. And don't believe it because I say it so. Do your own homework. Dig into, dig into a Bible. And again, I'll say I said last week, I'll say it again this week. If you don't have one of these, we will gladly give you, we'll give you more than one. We'll give you one for each hand and one to put on top of your head. Give away to somebody else. No problem. Uh, uh, I, I, I kid you not, the funnest purchase that David makes out of that office in the back is when he buys books of Bibles so that we can give them away. We'd love to do that for you. But don't believe it because I say it so. Believe it because Jesus said it so. Believe it because John pointed to Christ and said, hey, it's not me, it's that guy. Believe in that guy. And I always say it this way. The challenge is, is to dig in, to mine it out for yourself. Is Jesus who Jesus says he is? Read the case for Christ, Lee Strobel. 
to conclude. He, he set out to disprove Jesus. Guy was an investigative reporter, one of the best there was in his generation, uh, working out of the Midwest. He set out to disprove him. Guess what? Yeah. He didn't disprove anything. He became one of the strongest advocates for Christ, still is today, in our generation. Believe it because God says so in his word. Jesus says it about himself. You dig it out. I can't believe for you. You have to believe for yourself. Check it out. It's awesome. Let's stand and worship.